I've been trying to think of the best word to describe David Brooks's new book, just out today, entitled How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. And I think I've got it. The word is generous. Generous because the book speaks directly to the conundrum of our moment, our talking past each other, information rabbit holes that seem easier than ever with new technologies, performative partisanship, and growing social isolation that's everywhere in the data. But also generous because David's patented writing style involves his doing the hard work of reading lengthy books or analyzing experiments and distilling for us the takeaway insights or critical practices to consider deploying next time with a spouse or colleague based on the neuroscience data that we'll never likely read. So we get high-level insights aimed at everyday conversations that shape our lives and generous because, like his last book, The Second Mountain, several hundred pages of learning meets a kind of vulnerability that you just normally don't get from a New York Times columnist at the top of his game. I made this distinction in the book between the diminishers and the illuminators, that diminishers make people feel small, they stereotype. But illuminators, they illuminate with the beam of love and attention. They make people feel lit up. And I have a friend who's named Pancho Arguiles who helps people with who have suffered bad accidents and are paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And he gives them wheelchairs and diapers and catheters so they can lead dignified lives. Mm-hmm. And I once said, he's a beautiful human being, I once said to him, you know, you radiate holiness. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, no, I reflect holiness, mm-hmm. which is the right answer. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're trying to get the Holy Spirit to illuminate, to work through us and illuminate us. And today he sits down with Kurt Thompson, an MD and one of Northern Virginia's most trusted psychiatrists with a flourishing local practice that focuses on the intersection of what Kurt calls interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian view of being human. Every baby comes into the world looking for someone looking for them and my capacity to see is dependent deeply upon the degree to which I've actually been seen. For his part, Kurt's written four books, most recently, The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. That new book, also linked in the show notes, suggests, as David does, that pain can lead to change, that hardship and suffering can lead to new ways of listening. And with practice and purposeful conversations, what Kurt describes in the book as confessional communities, better habits emerge. Since graduating from the University of Chicago in 1983, David has written six books, worked as a police reporter, worked as a nine-year Wall Street Journal editor, served as senior editor at the Weekly Standard, and in addition to regular pieces at The Atlantic and elsewhere, written regular columns at the New York Times for more than two decades. All that in addition to the Friday night PBS News Hour. Despite the fact that David's given hundreds of speeches and penned thousands of columns over the years, to listen to him these days is also to get vulnerability and honesty that comes through clearly in this book and in the transparent reflections you're about to hear. These generous offerings are exactly what we need more of these days. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, I have to say Dave's done it again in this growing quest to explore character formation and wholeness, writing in the second mountain. You trekked into Trump country to try to become a little more alert to some of the things you missed in 2016. And we're not obviously in a glorious place in terms of our public dialogue and our politics. And you've written another masterful book about seeing one another in better, 
more honoring and more loving ways. And Kurt has written uh, a masterful book just recently about suffering as well. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about why you, why you chose to write this particular book at this time. Yeah, first I want to thank uh, Kurt for also being here. When you start writing about books about how seeing others deeply and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, about once a week somebody says, do you know that guy, Kurt Thompson? He writes about this stuff all the time. So I'm really pleased to be able to have mm-hmm. be in conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, this book started um, with a problem. And the problem is that we're in living in the middle of some sort of social and spiritual breakdown. And so it's in the rising tide of depression, rising tide of suicides, 54% of Americans say that no one knows them well. The number of people who have no close personal friends is up by four times. The number of people without a romantic partner is up by a third. The number of people who rate themselves in the lowest happiness category is up by 50%. And so this is just a crisis of connection. And this book is meant to be an exocet missile right at that crisis. And to me, the way you deal with this crisis of connection is you get really good at seeing others. And you get phenomenally good at, and in the book, it's meant to be practical. I just walk people through the steps. Here's what you do when you're first meeting, the first gaze. Here's how you hang out with somebody before you really know them. Then here's how you have get phenomenally good at conversations. Here's how you get phenomenally good at asking questions. And the core problem is we're basically selfish. And we tend to look at others as instruments for our use. And we get each other wrong. There's a researcher in University of Texas who's, who finds that when we're first meeting another person, we accurately understand what the other person is thinking only 22% of the time. And with friends and family, it's 35%. So we just are not as good as we think we are. And the book is meant to help people get better at this art of seeing other people, uh, making them feel seen, heard, and understood. And that's the way to heal this social crisis. Karen, how do you see it? From Well, first of all, let me just say, it's, it's just delightful to be in the room with you. Yeah. This is, I think this will be the longest amount of time that you and I have spent having a conversation it, with each other. True. And I'm just really... Really grateful for this, and and I would also say to the audience and who and who reads your work widely, David, that I think the reason I'm so thrilled about this is because there's someone else that is picking up this baton around how desperately we long to be known and how desperately we need to be known in order for us to then go on and have that happen. And um, so I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you've written this. And my, uh, my hope is that, you know, we, we say um, in, when, when people come to, where we're doing clinician training or anything else, I say, look, at the, at the end of the day or the three days or whatever we're doing of listening to me yap, uh, you're not going to be a lot smarter. Because uh, my job is not uh, going to be to make you smarter, my job is to inspire you to go home and do the work. And my hope is that people will read the book and then do the work. Uh, because even though, um, I mean, you do say this on a, you know, on a number of occasions, you, you are explicit and you say, yeah, this takes practice. And that's all true. And, and yet we live in a world in which we are being trained on a regular basis uh, to believe that we should be able to read a book and then be the book right. without actually uh, having to do any of the work that you are uh, explicitly and at times implicitly calling people to do. You can't read your book and without, like, yeah, if you're going to read your book, I'll just say this to the listeners, if you're going to read your book, you have to come with your work boots on. 
you have to come uh, being ready to uh, reflect. You can't. I mean, like you can read this book uh, kind of as a manual. You can. You, that's how, that's one way to read this. Uh, but my invitation is to, uh, like we talk about when we read the scriptures, or when we talk about when we read any good, helpful piece of literature, we want to meditate on things. We want to let this sit with us, soak into us. And that would be my encouragement for folks, because there's a lot in the book that can enable us to uh, do the very thing that you're inviting us to do, if we're willing to do the work together. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of what I'm Offering people as techniques on how to be a good conversationalist, but you're not going to. Th- but it, it has to become a way of life. It has to become internalized, and it's a little like when actors go to theater school; they learn some of the techniques of acting, but when they're on stage, they're not thinking about the techniques. It's become internalized. And so, for example, the first skill I talk about when we meet somebody is the gaze. Is the first gaze because whenever you meet a, a stranger. You're each asking each other, or you're each asking yourselves unconscious questions, which is, am I a priority to you? Am I a person to you? And the answers to those questions are answered by, the, the, uh, by your eyes before you say any word. And I tell this little story that I love. I just was emailing my friend Jimmy Durrell, who's a pastor in Waco, Texas, and he, he ministers something called Church Under the Bridge, where there's a church under a highway overpass where the homeless people are. He brought his church to them. And so I'm in Waco. I'm interviewing a woman named LaRue Dorsey, who's this 93-year-old lady. And she presents herself to me as this stern disciplinary. And she's like a tough drill sergeant type. And she's like, she said, I, I love my students enough to discipline them. And she'd been a teacher. Uh, and so she's intimidating to me. And then comes Jimmy to the diner where we're having breakfast. He sees us. He walks over to Mrs. Dorsey, grabs her by the shoulder, and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. <laughs> And he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best. You're the best. I love you. I love you. And so that tough drill sergeant suddenly turns into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. Like she's become a different human being under the power of his warm attention. And partly he's a warm guy. But partly, you know, it, it matters that he's a pastor and that he, when he sees anybody, he's looking at somebody made in the image of God. He's looking a little into the face of God. He's looking at somebody with an infinite soul. Um, He's looking at somebody so important, Jesus died for them. And so my line is, you know, I'm a secular writer. I don't care if you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or atheist or agnostic. But seeing people with that level of reverence and respect, everybody you meet, is a prerequisite for knowing them well. And does that mean now that I've worked on this book for four years that everybody I meet I I treat properly? No, it's it's like a sport. It's you have to keep practicing to get better. But I hope I've become uh, a little better at that kind of illuminating gaze. You have a little score sheet there at the very end where you rank yourself a little bit. The last couple of pages I saw. But how's this thing work about casting your attention on a person as a moral act? You saw Iris Murdoch. Mm-hmm. You say Rowan Williams has this idea of slack and attention at the same time. How's it work? How's it work in the therapist's office to have one eye that is you know, more rigorous, more truthful maybe? One has more grace? I don't know. How's it, how's it work? Yeah, I'd, I'd be very curious to hear from Kurt how it works in the therapist's office. Yeah. So Iris Murdoch was this Irish uh, writer and, pho- and philosopher, English, a novelist. Uh, and she, uh, she said most of the times we look at people uh, through self-centered eyes. There's something on stage as part of our movie. And she says, but we can... Our goal should be to cast what she calls a just and loving attention on another person. And so, for example, um, she says, I might see someone as, 
as immature, but I know I'm kind of a snob, and maybe I should see them as fresh and vital. And that way I'm not changing my behavior, but I'm seeing them in a, in a more just and loving way. And that's the first step over toward becoming a just and loving person. I quote Parker Palmer in the book, every epistemology becomes an ethic. Your way of knowing becomes your way of being in the world. And, that's, and so she's showing us a way of knowing another person, which becomes her way of being. And I'm reminded uh, in, during World War II, there were three women I wrote about in, from Comment Magazine, my wife's magazine, uh, uh, Edith Stein, Simone Weil, and Eddie Hillisum. And each of them, in the moment of crisis, all three women born in Jewish families, the crisis of the Holocaust, they were transformed. They became more mystical, more spiritual, more giving, more other-centered. In Edith Stein's case, saintly, literally saintly, she became a saint. And in Eddie Hillison's case, very saintly. She was an other-centered person who served those who were being trained away to go to Auschwitz. And people remember as this warm, glowing presence. And she transformed herself from being an immature, self-absorbed little 25-year-old girl to being this beautiful, other-centered being, according to her biographer, because she, she changed herself by paying close attention. She paid close attention to the people around her, saw the anxiety in their voices. She refused to be numbed by the barbarism all around her. And she became just this wonderful person, an example of what Iris Murdoch was talking about, that we can grow by looking. And it is that the p- attention is a moral act. As Simone Weil said, attention is the ultimate generous act, and prayer is a form of attention. How does that compare to the therapist's office? Well, you know, one of the things that we like to say uh, is that there's nothing that we do in a psychotherapy environment that actually isn't happening in everyday life. Mm. There's nothing particular about the consultation room. Uh, What makes it different is that we are explicit about what's happening in the room. We're naming the things that are happening. The same thing that happens there is happening in the Safeway checkout line that's happening with Simone Weil, that's happening with anyone who's uh, longing to become the kind of person that you're writing about in your book. And, you know, we, we have this, this, we have a number of different <laughs> phrases that we like to use, this sense that, like, every, you know, baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for them, and my capacity to see is dependent deeply upon the degree to which I've actually been seen. We like to say uh, we can't give what we don't have. You know, uh, you write beautifully about empathy in your one of the one of your chapters on empathy. And empathy, interestingly enough, for instance, is it is not like breathing. Empathy is, I mean, all intentional human behavior is mimicked. I have to either experience it coming at me, or I have to watch it happen between someone and someone else. And empathy is an actively, intentionally directed behavior. And so the only way I'm going to be empathic is if I either see it or I have it you know, committed toward me. Now, empathy in of itself, we would say, is you know, I, can, I, can, I can be a sociopath and be empathic, mm-hmm. right? So, it's, so again, it's not just that I'm looking, that I'm gazing. It's what is my intention that is even behind the gaze. Speaking of World War II, I mean, Hitler was looking for people too. And, and so we're this, this question of, am I looking for someone uh, from the place of loving kindness? 
Uh, am I looking with the intention of enabling them to become more whole, even as our Father in heaven is more whole? My God, I, I can't do that if I don't have input, if I don't have people coming for me who are equally able to enable me to have the practice of, oh, this is what it's like to be seen. This is what it's like to ha- have the experience of, you know, I-, I now feel felt by the other, and that is something that I can turn around and put that into practice. Part of our challenge, of course, is that our traumas, large or small though they be, leads to the development of insecure attachment patterns. And so much of what it means for us to give other people the experience of being known has everything to do with the degree to which I myself experience the development of earned secure attachment. If I don't have that process, it becomes very difficult for me to sense emotion. I can, I can be really smart, and I can see it, I can know it, I can know it as a left hemispheric thing. And I can even say to other people, I see that you look sad because it registers in my left. It registers with me as a fact that you look sad. But for me to feel that in my chest and uh, sense that, that becomes also something that I'm able to then, they're going to sense that I sense it or if I don't. And so what I'm hearing you talk about in your book is that it's a call for us to also answer the question, uh, by whom, in order for us to see others, in order for us to know, by whom are we being seen? By whom are we being known in order for us to then turn around and offer that gaze of loving kindness uh, that you're talking about? Yeah. And, you know, babies uh, need, they come out of the womb, as you say, looking for recognition. Recognition is the first human quest and I'm sure some of our listeners have gone on YouTube and, and looked for still face experiments where they ask moms to not, re, not offer recognition. The baby coos or does something to get attention. The mom just sits there still face. And within seconds, the babies turn into agony. And you who are watching the YouTube video yeah, are also turning yeah, to agony. Absolutely. <laughs> and so we just need that recognition. And as you say, you can't create a relationship you haven't experienced. Uh, and I guess the one thing I'd be curious to ask you is that a lot of I was told this by a, a therapist I know named Lori Gottlieb, who wrote a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, what we are as therapists is story editors, that people come to us because their story isn't working. And in my view, when people's story isn't working, it's sometimes because they get the causation wrong. They blame themselves for things that aren't their fault, and they blame others for things that are their fault. And Lori mm-hmm. says, my job is to help people walk through their story over and over again to get a little more accurate. Mm. And if you don't know what story you're a part of, you don't know what to do in life. You don't know what your identity is. And I think that a close friend can do something like that, even outside a professional office, that if you really know somebody and somebody's getting their story wrong, you can say, really, is that, are you leaving some stuff out here? I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, which is why I was, that my comment earlier, that like everything that we do in the consultation room we're doing outside. The question is, how explicit are we able to be? And if I'm, if we're friends, and I ask, "How are you doing?" Uh, I I don't want the six second, ten thousand foot flyby. Right. I want to have a space where you and I sit down on a regular basis, uh, whereby which we can actually unpack this. And I think that that whole notion of what Lori talks about, um, we, we like to say that like, look, we're storytellers, like no other animal on the planet is. 
And what our traumas do is that not only do they give us a misinterpretation of stories, uh, but trauma that's unresolved also tends to uh, shatter our storytelling mechanism. And as such, uh, we, in our work, we like to say well, part of what we do is that we help people tell their stories more truly. We would say, like the gospel, the way, the truth, and the life. Like it's not just truth as in epistemological truth, some factual positive truth, but what does it mean for us to live truly, faithfully, beautifully as we were intended to be made to live? And part of then what it means to live more truly is if you, if I say uh, I'm, I'm doing fine, and I've been telling people all day and for the last two weeks I'm doing fine, and you look at me and you say, Dude, you don't look fine. Right. So what's what? And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So then you say, hey, let's get a cup of coffee. And the next thing I know, we're seated, and uh, you have invited me to move into a space, literally with my body, where we're not just standing on the street or walking. And you say, what was that that I saw mm-hmm. ten minutes ago? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And you say, well, I see this thing. And before you know it, like I'm telling you something that is very different. But I'm telling you this thing from a place in me that is in anguish. And I'm in anguish largely because I'm alone with whatever it is. But now, now you enter the space. And you don't just help me tell the story differently because you give me a different set of facts. You're not just correcting the information. You're actually correcting my felt experience of the thing that I'm telling you about because now somebody is with me in a way nobody was when it happened. And that becomes the, this becomes a recapitulation of what newborns are looking for when it comes to the development of secure attachment. And that's why so much of what you're talking about in your book is so important for people to be recognizing. And then the question becomes, how can we do what you're talking about in a community whereby which I can have others help me tell my story more truly, yeah. more faithfully. Yeah. And as you were speaking, I somehow I was reminded, um, first one of my favorite sayings that grows out of attachment theory, that all of life is a series of daring explorations from a secure base. Uh, and it's, yeah. that's like the perfect encapsulation uh, of attachment theory. But then as you were talking about that, to, in order to perform that gift to you, I need to be able to A, see the anxiety in your voice. I have to be a noticer. And one of the things I learned while working on the book was how good actors are at it. They, uh, they would describe to me in minute detail how they notice things in other people. Uh, Viola Davis gave an interview where he said, I, we're, we're, just like an, we're just like noticing, why did you turn your head that way? Why did you eat that way? I had a chance to interview Matthew McConaughey, and he said, like, I had one character who was a hands-in-the-front-pockets kind of guy. He was sort of hunched over. And I, when he said that, I thought of Richard Nixon for some reason, like hunched over. And therefore, when he was giving assertive, he was going to be big and fake. He was going to be artificial because that's not natural. He's naturally a hunched over guy. And so actors are so great at noticing that. But then after that, the next skill is really having being open to that conversation. And it's possible that you'll just you'll have it all on your mind. But it's possible, I imagine, that you you'll need some string pulled out of you. You'll need some stories because a lot of things you don't even know yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's totally. that ability to ask questions three or four times, like in different ways. And we all have a mutual friend uh, who's a good friend of mine too uh, named Pete Wayner. And when I was going through hard times, I'd get on a call with Pete and 
he'd ask a series of questions, and then he'd pause, and I'd think, okay, he's going to give me some thoughts. <laughs> but then Pete would ask another eight questions. And it was that extra eight questions is where we got, really got somewhere. Mm-hmm. So he asked questions longer than the social norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, it was a, just very helpful for me at the mm-hmm. time. Is that a tribute to Pete, that disagreement below the disagreement? Isn't that one of your lines? Find the disagreement yeah. below the disagreement. That I heard at a, a Faith Angle Forum oh, in, in, okay. in France. So. Oh, okay. And, and what, what did you think, Kurt, about David's line about inspiration is a very polite thing? Uh, I think citing that's Mary, Mary Piper. Yes, the idea that the soft introduction of ideas, but not too hard, not too much, not too fast. How's that even working? Then? Well, you know, we, uh, we we like to talk about uh, you know mindful learning. Uh, there are folks who write about this this notion of how there's a way of teaching people in school and other places in which we give them information, we, then we give them a test, and please check the boxes with the right answer. That doesn't give them much of an opportunity to be curious. And so there's a, there's a great deal about our educational training, that, that, which, you know, about many who will be listening to this podcast, like we know what we're talking about. We've been formed in a particular way in which we're um, trained actually, uh, not, not intentionally, but we were being trained to be uncurious. Uh, we are rather being trained to, to be condemning. Now, by condemning, I don't mean that harshly. I don't mean that we're just looking for people to, you know, condemn. What I mean is, like, we're looking to critique. We're looking, like, this is the way that we're, and, and, and understandably so. Like, I want to know that the bridge will hold the weight. I need to critique that. Theory. There's, no, there's no question about that. But we spend a lot of time in that space, which means when you get back to Mary, you know, her, her comment about, about inspiration, it's difficult for me to be inspired when I'm having to manage my uh, story of self-condemnation, which I'm going to get because, like, I'm continually doing this for lots of different reasons. This is what's banging around in the privacy of my head. But when someone comes along and starts to be the Pete Winners in our lives and they're asking us questions— they're actually, they're not just asking us questions in order to have us look for and find information. They're giving us an experience of someone who wants to be more and more with the parts of us that we don't know we don't know. And with that, it does start to feel a bit inspiring. I start to, dis- like, what is inspiration? There is this sense of it is to in it is to wit, inhale, right? It is this this sense that I'm taking in life, and I'm taking in life by virtue of someone else being curious about me, which enables me in in a in an environment in which I can now take risks. I can now imagine things that are outside the purview of what has kept me safe, and I start to literally imagine all kinds of things, but I do so primarily because somebody else has been imagining things about me. We like to say that most of our work involves uh, our imagining things on behalf of patients while their imaginations are trying to catch up. Hmm. Yeah. That's really what we're trying to uh, do. Yeah. It's, what par- it's what parents do. Right. And it, it's, it is that level of questioning, that ability. And you know, I've come to think that we, in our culture, don't ask big enough questions. Somehow we're, mod- we're modest about it. Like I have a story in the book that I love from a friend of mine named Naomi Way, and she's teaching eighth grade boys how to interview. And, and so she says, first class, I'm gonna sit up in the front of the room, ask me any question I'll answer honestly. So the first question from student A is, are you married? And she says, no. Second question, are you divorced? Yes. Third question, do you still love him? And she's like blown away, and then she says, yes. 
And the fourth question was, does he know? By this time, she's just crying. <laughs> do your kids know? And so kids are just phenomenal at asking questions. And the meals that I've had or times I've had with people that I enjoyed the most is when somebody put a big question on the floor. And so I was with a political scientist who's 80. And he said, what should I do with the rest of my career? I'm, I'm energetic. And so we, that was a great conversation about his interests, about how to behave in old age, about how to face death. It was, and it went on for like an hour and a half, just different issues raised by this. And I collect in the book some big questions that I think will help people lift out of their rut and see themselves anew. And those are things like, what crossroads are you at? What transition are you in the middle of? Mm-hmm. If the next five years of your, your life is a chapter, what's the chapter about? Mm-hmm. Um, can you be who you are and still fit in? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I quote Peter Block, who writes about community, who I think is, who has wonderful questions. What's the commitment you've made you no longer believe in? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what gift do you hold in exile? What, what talent do you have that you're not taking, using? Um, what's the no that you keep postponing? And so those are questions that we don't normally think about life that way. We're normally like busy with the chores. Uh, and so those can produce gigantic conversations that you'll remember for a long time where people get to know each other. We had one, my wife Anne made fun of me for this, but I asked, um, how do your ancestors show up your life? And in that particular dinner party, we had like a Dutch couple, we had a black couple, and they all talked about their heritages and how it shapes who they are today going back hundreds of years. It was fabulous conversation. And so it's that... Thing well, that, well, I'm going to point out, I just want to say, if you were to ask them, when's the last time anybody's asked you that question? Yeah. And my guess is they would say, uh, uh, I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question, certainly not in this yeah. setting. And so it's, it, it is that you're asking the question, but I, I would also suggest that it's not just the question or the information that it evokes, but it is that is you, it, like you are connecting with them, with parts of them that are important. You hear the story, you see the story. And so they're not just telling you information either. They're having their story seen by someone else, which changes lots of things about them that uh, that wouldn't happen if you don't ask the question. Yeah, and in that way, seeing is a form of creation. You calling people into being. Yep, yep. And I quote, I know someone we like admire together, Ian McGilchrist who says that what attention is a moral act, what you see, the models you use to interpret reality determine what you see there. Uh, And uh, so, you know, I I do think these are all different little moral acts. So one question I'd want to ask you, and I've been asked this and I don't know the answer, is that in your writing and in in, uh, The Deepest Place, you emphasize how embodied we are. And I would say, uh, I, used, I did a book called The Social Animal like 10 years ago where I interviewed a bunch of neuroscientists. And then I sort of drifted away from their field. Now I interviewed them again for this, fee- this book. And I would say in the 10 years, a couple things have changed. One of them is they're much more attuned to the body, mm-hmm. that the brain is not just sitting alone up there as a vat, you know, a brain in a vat. It's deeply connected to the neurons in your gut, to your vagal nerve, your autonomic nervous system. And so I'm asked, when we talk about seeing someone deeply, can you, and it's so embodied, can you do it uh, by Zoom? <laughs> can, do you think you need to physically be in the same room with someone to achieve the depth of seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'll, we, we, um, a lot of the work that we do, we, we conduct what we call confessional communities that we talk about a little bit in the deepest place. And uh, we were, you know, deep into these when COVID hit. 
and I was sure that we were done. I couldn't imagine having eight other people with my own colleague and myself on a Zoom call for 90 minutes once a week. And I was stunned at uh, the capacity of people, people's uh, interests, presence, and so forth. And we found that we were able to do this kind of work in ways that I would have, I would have thought, no, they're done with this. They, they, they can't do this. Now, uh, and, and so people, um, we, we continue to do this work. People found us to be useful, so forth and so on. That having been said, when we came back into the office, I'll never forget one of, the, one of the first groups that we had back in the office with a group that had been together for a couple of years before COVID. The year with COVID, they're back in the office, and the very first time we're there, one of the members, they started to speak, and they stopped. And they said, oh, my gosh, like, I'm, I'm just aware that I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> this is a person who's been in this group for like three and a half years. I'm so uncomfortable. Because there was a sense in which her body was reading things that she wasn't aware that her body was reading. And so I, I do think that the answer is yes, we, we, there are lots of things that we can do on Zoom. And if the choice is uh, we do this on Zoom or you don't do it at all, then yeah, absolutely we do this on Zoom. If the choice is we do this on Zoom or we do this in person, absolutely we do this in person. Um, one of the things I, I, I wrote a, a, an article about two months into the pandemic um, having to do with this notion that uh, when we come into a room, I, I'm, I, when, I, when I greet you, I'm actually, my body is doing a ton of work seamlessly, uh, reading things, telling you things, so forth and so on. And I'm actually looking for your body to do the same thing. Um, and uh, when we get on Zoom, my body is still looking for your body. Hmm. Only your body's not there. There are studies, attachment studies, that, that, that demonstrate how it is that even uh, 15-month-olds, 12-month-olds, 15-month-olds are easily able to differentiate between seeing their mother on a screen and seeing their mother in person, their general body habits how, and how they, how they change for that. And so early on when people were like, oh, my, I'm so exhausted because of being on Zoom. I'm like, yes, because you're like a cell phone who's looking for a signal. It's looking for a cell tower, and there's no cell tower. And I'm going to drain the battery pretty quickly because there are things that I'm looking for that I really long for. Now, of course, we accommodate to this over time, so we stop expecting things. And then all of a sudden, there we are in the room again, and there's like, oh, my gosh, like it's like, it's like David sitting in my lap, right? <laughs> right? Because he's not like on the Zoom call anymore. And so there is, again, this getting used to things that is not just about my intellect getting used to things. It is about the very physicality of getting used to things. And But this is also, you know, 60 to 90% of communication is nonverbal. So much of how I'm communicating to you, like, we, you know, we like to say, you know, if I don't feel it in my chest, whatever we're talking about isn't yet fully true for me. And so, again, uh, you know, you, I, you're, um, what you're describing about these neuroscientists that you, you know, by, by comparison over 10 years and the differences that they see would track with the current, with the trends in, you know, psychotherapy training as well. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, uh, we were still, whether we would call it this or not, we were still, uh, parts of us were still just, you know, psychoanalytic in nature, or we were brains on a stick. 
Those are the two options that we had. And the work of the body has really been helpful in transforming both of those postures in enabling us to see, actually, you know, we like to say, look, second page of the Bible, God formed the human being from the mud of the earth. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, became a living being. That we are dirt and we are spirit, and if you take one of those away, we stop being human. They're equally important, but they're actually, they actually come in a particular sequence. And the, the, the body senses, and then we make sense of what we sense. And so this whole notion of how we see people is deeply connected to the degree to which I'm actually not just seeing what I see, but I'm sensing in my own body your anxiety that I also see. And so I, the more I'm actually able to pay attention to, oh, that's, that's this feeling that I feel, I can then be curious about that yeah. in the heart of the other. That's interesting. As you were talking, I was reminded of a study, I think I said in The Social Animal, that people who lose their sense of smell suffer greater emotional deterioration than people who lose their sense of sight. Mm -hmm. Because we are, it's creepy to think about, but we're mammals and we're smelling each other. And and I think when people first kiss, they're checking out each other's immune system unconsciously. We don't think about this. But um, frankly, I'm grateful that I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. I'll let Phyllis know that when I go home. (laughs) I'm well, uh, this is what I'm told by science. Yeah. What do I know? <laughs> but I'm glad that you could do this over face, over over Zoom because yeah. it's that's very uh, cheering. I I reminded I had a friend of mine, a woman, and she started dating some guy, and I said, "How serious are you guys?" And she says, "Oh, we're getting pretty serious." And I said, "Have you done FaceTime together?" "Oh no, we're not ready for FaceTime. That's too intimate." <laughs> Digital <laughs> so, dating. Um, so you 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 raised something earlier, Kurt, about uh, communities that are un, unintentionally not very curious and learning habits from that. And I wanted to ask sort of a religion question with that in mind, because you know one of the biggest sort of reasons that growing number of friends are not necessarily themselves part of a congregation is because they don't find it to be a particularly thoughtful, challenging, rigorous, curious experience. It's the lines are very clear and it's sort of, you know, you go to sort of like know who you aren't or something like that. Be real. And that's other than what I think we would want for religious life to sort of wellspring to spring from. So I guess I'm curious, David says we're a mass of antitheses, like a river sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's, we're, we're clean, but sometimes it's a lot, a lot less going on. How, how that do was you Tolstoy, st- but I'll take credit Tolstoy. for Tolstoy. That was your moment. How can and should, you know, how can and should religious communities become more, more curious so that they attract uh, the best minds in the country? Not that that's the goal, right? But you know what I'm saying. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think... Um, I think of the work of John Mark Comer and others who are doing this work in in the way that look at the, you know spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines and so forth in ways that are embodied. I, I think there there are people out there in in religious communities that are asking these kinds of questions. But I think what what strikes me about this is that it, when we read the Bible, for instance, uh, and in the Soul of Desire, we address four questions, and these are God is a curious God. The God of the Bible is a curious God. Uh, the God is, of the Bible is not one who mostly uh, stands at a pulpit and preaches. The most provocative moments are, where are you? Or things like, where are you with Adam? Jesus' question, like, what do you want? First words in, in John's gospel. I would think, like, most people are like, you know, how, how curious do you find Jesus to be of you? Like, 
I, I don't know what you're talking about. The sense that God is a curious God. And so much of what formation is about with, uh, with children, and this then extends into our spiritual formation, has a lot to do with those who are guides, whether it's parents or whether it's pastors, who are willing to, uh, from places of their own vulnerability, uh, be curious with their congregation about the things that they're exploring. And so, yes, they will have things to say. Uh, they will have sermons to preach and so forth, but always in the context of uh, these questions that, that God is asking, not just about you know, um, what I think about predestination, no, it's uh, what are what are you most deeply longing for? Um, what do you, when Jesus asks, "What do you want?" For example, I like I, I would be the first to say that question makes me nervous because I'm afraid that I don't know the right answer to this question, or I'm afraid that I'm going to have an answer that is going to be inadequate to this, or maybe I've worked uh, maybe so much of my longings and desires have been so tangled up with my shame that even to name what I want is too risky because it brings forth all kinds of other affective states. And so I don't until I'm with someone else in a community that is saying, I, we want to hear this. I, I want a pastor who will sit in the room with me and say, I want to hear your story. Like, I want to hear every part about your story so that we can collectively help you uh, tell this story more truly. And we've had many people say in these confessional communities, uh, we've had many people say, why, why, why can't this be church? I said, well, I said, if you were to give us some worship music ahead of time, you know, these, these 90 minute sessions, you have two worship songs beforehand. Well, we can do that. And then in the middle, uh, somebody's going to volunteer. Somebody's going to have, you know, a five to seven minute homily. And at the end, we're going to have a Eucharist and we would have church. And most of what church would be would be about formation. It would be about people learning to be loved, allowing themselves to be loved by others in the room. Um, we have friends, Jay and Catherine Wolf, who like to talk about how um, everyone has a disability. Some are more visible than others. And when we talk about our disabilities, we can look around and say, well, we're pretty disabled when it comes to loving others. We look around the world. But there is an even greater disability that we have that we wouldn't even think about most days, and that is that I am even more disabled in allowing you to love me. I'm terrified of it. Like, I want love in all the ways that I think that I want it until it actually shows up on my doorstep with all of its beauty and all of its demands and all of its inquiry into the places of my heart where I'm terrified to go. But this is what you're saying. You're looking, love is coming looking for me, and he's not coming with a neutral posture or with, I mean, he's coming with an intention for loving and for integration and for wholeness and all those things. And when it comes to religious experience, uh, when we are willing to create outposts of beauty and goodness that, are, uh, that have an intention about where we are going and that functionally and mechanically are um, supported by curiosity, not just randomly, and not you can say whatever you want to say, but we have a way to go. I think that um, I think I think it gives people the opportunity, just like at your dinner party, when you're asking people these questions, they're like, there there is a certain sense in which love often is jarring, because like like oh my gosh, like David is serious about some part of my story that nobody has ever asked me. 
And when this becomes the body of Jesus doing this kind of work in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we come to discover that God is really quite serious about transforming our real story, our embodied experience of that right here and now. We're not waiting for heaven to get here in its fullness for that to happen. Yeah, it was funny working on the book while reading the Bible and going to church and all that kind of stuff. I was struck by how wise the Bible is on a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about in more scientific ways. So, for example, in Western culture, we make this distinction between reason and emotions. And that's not really a distinction that the biblical authors saw. To know is to love, to observe, to enter into covenant with, to have sex with. Like It's a very broad category to know. And it's like Chinese culture also, they don't make that distinction. And we shouldn't. There's, there's really no distinction between emotion and, and reason because emotions is how we assign value to things. And if you can't assign value to something, you can't reason about it. You don't know what you want. And so the, those two are all mixed up. The second thing I observed is how often in the Bible there's a drama of recognition where somebody missees somebody else. And obviously Abraham, or Isaac and Esau, uh, obviously um, the case of the disciples not recognizing the risen Christ. And the, the Samaritan story, I mean, the, a lot of people see the injured guy on the side of the road, but only the Samaritan really sees him. And the other people's failure, is not a, it's not a failure of the intellect, it's a failure of the heart. Mm-hmm. They're not seeing with mm-hmm. the heart. Mm-hmm. And, and God gives us a model of how to know. I mean, God sees with the eyes of perfect love, and that's mm-hmm. our model. Mm-hmm. And I even th- I have to mention The Chosen in every conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of the nice things about that show is that the way Jesus looks at people, the way the actor looks at people. Uh, and it's, it's really the Holy Spirit illuminating them. And that's why I made this t- distinction in the book between the d- diminishers and the illuminators, that diminishers make people feel small, they stereotype. Mm-hmm. But illuminators, they illuminate with the beam of love and attention. They make people feel lit up. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend who's named Pancho Arguiles who helps people with, uh, who have suffered bad accidents and are paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And he gives them wheelchairs and diapers and catheters so they can lead de- dignified lives. Mm-hmm. And I once said, he's a beautiful human being. I once said to him, you know, you radiate holiness. Mm. And he said to me, no, I reflect holiness, mm. Mm. which is the right answer. Mm. And, and so it, we're trying to get the Holy Spirit to illuminate, to work through us mm. and illuminate us. And the transition from somebody who's capable of doing that a little and somebody who isn't is, well, it, it's my life. I hope I can do it a little now, but I certainly couldn't before. Or one of my heroes, and I think for many of us, Fred Beekner, he, his dad committed suicide and he basically shut down. It never grieved, never felt, just shut down. And then I think he realized in the middle of life as he wrote that when you cut yourself off from the emotions of life, you cut yourself off from the holy sources of life itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what Beekner came to write, as I was reminded as you were talking about the fear, mm-hmm. he said what we long for most is to be seen in our full essence. And what we fear most is to be seen in our full essence. Mm-hmm. And so both those things are, are true. And then he says, but it's important to tell your true story from time to time or else you'll fall for the edited version of yourself you present to the world and you'll forget who you really are. And it's also important to tell secrets because it may help other people tell secrets. Right. Right. And so he, his is a, a narrative, a life narrative of somebody who moved from emotional closeness to a period of emotional openness. And for somebody like me who was pretty aloof and, and closed off, um, it's a model. His life is a model for, for what I aspire to. Yeah, the book is very um, transparent at times. It's sort of practicing and failing and, 
and you tell the story. It's a very painful chapter, hard to read, about Peter Marks uh, in 2022 um, having, you know, three deaths of close friends, really. But uh, could you talk a little bit about Peter Marks, uh, you, you know, who he was, your friendship with him, the struggle involved, and, and how you tried uh, yeah. to, to love him? Well, he, he was my oldest friend. We met when we were 11 at a summer camp in, called Incarnation Camp in Connecticut. Uh, and uh, we built our friendship on play. We played basketball, even though it was like eight inches taller than me. Uh, we played rugby. We played softball. We, we turned food into play. Like we just smacked our lips and had fun. And he had a blessed life of 57 years of a great career as a surgeon and a great wife and two great sons. And then depression hit him. And I thought I was a reasonably well-educated guy. But I turned out I didn't even know what depression was. And I learned you can't understand depression by extrapolating from moments of your own sadness. That's not what it is. Mm. And I later learned, I think the best description I got from our late friend Mike Gerson, uh, depression is a malfunction in the instrument you use to perceive reality. And so you're not seeing reality. And both Mike and my friend Pete, it took the form of obsessive compulsive voices that were lying to them, that nobody would mind if you're gone, you're worthless. And Pete couldn't he? On the one hand, he knew those voices were lying, but on the other hand, the, those voices were in his head. And so, in when he this hit him in 2019, and then 2020, we had phone calls mostly over COVID. And I made mistakes because I didn't the skill of sitting with someone who's suffering. Um, and one of those mistakes was I tried to give him an idea of how to get out of it. He used to go to Vietnam and do surgery for eye surgeries, and it, he found it tremendously rewarding. And I said, you should go do that. And I later learned that if you're giving somebody an idea how to get out of depression, you're just showing you just don't get it because it's not ideas that are missing. It's energy. Uh, and so that was unhelpful. Then I tried to do this thing called positive reframing where I tried to say, well, here's, you know, here's what's wonderful about your life. But really I was just reminding him that um, he was not enjoying the things that are palpably enjoyable. How is that going to make him feel better? So then I learned um, – there's words were pretty futile in this circumstance, and all I could do was demonstrate by my presence that I was I was acknowledging the reality of the situation, and I was sticking around. And and Kurt, I hope I'm doing the right thing, but I was once. This was before Pete died, but while he was sick, um, I was in Oklahoma. And I gave a talk, and the questions after the talk came on index cards, the way they sometimes do, and most of the questions were political. But one of them said, "What do you do when you no longer want to be alive?" And it was just, a sh I'm in front of an audience, I'm shocked, I don't know what to say. And I really felt, I just passed over that card because I thought, I shouldn't say anything, I don't know this person, I, I, I can't advise someone I don't know. But I think if I had some more time to think about it, I think the first thing I'd say is, um, first of all, I admire you for your courage because you're in a lot of pain and you're still here. Yeah. Uh, and so that's something. And the second thing, I, I read Viktor Frankl when he was counseling people who were thinking of suicide. He would say to them, and it sounds harsh, but I think he says it worked or was helpful, um, that life has not stopped expecting things of you, that the world still needs you. Uh, and that it seems like you're putting another demand on them, but it gives people a sense of purpose. And then I uh, was taught a quote by a, a Baptist pastor locally, a guy named Chris Davis, who some of you may know, uh, and he gave me a Thornton Wilder quote, and I'm going to butcher it, but just to paraphrase it a little uh, he said, where would your power be without your wounds? It is the very sadness that you've endured that makes your low voice rumble in the hearts of men. Mm 
in love service only wounded soldiers can serve. And so I, I wish I could have shared that with Pete to say, you know, you, you've, you haven't come out of this suffering with empty hands. But at the end of the day, you know, he ended up taking his own life. He ended up falling victim to suicide. Um, and so words, you know, the monster was too big for us, basically. I don't blame any of us. We People did what they could, mm-hmm. uh, but the monster was just too big. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, I wish I had done a little more touch points, like just the random text, just thinking, you know, no response necessary. And you do what you can, and it may not be enough, but you do what you can. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I just want to say um, thank you for writing. Thank you for writing the story. It's real. And uh, for those, there, there may be some who are listening to this, uh, for whom uh, uh, this may be uh, the most important moment that they're listening to uh, in this recording. And uh, so I, I, I want to say thank you for writing the story. Thank you for asking the question about the story about Pete and about um, your longing to be present with him. Um, We could talk for a long time about this particular topic. I do think that, you know, when when we become depressed, you know, when people say, like, my brain's not working, I'd say, well, that's that's one way to talk about it. I said, but another way, another way, an additional way to talk about it is that your brain is actually doing exactly what it should be doing under the circumstances under which we've been asking it to live. It's doing exactly the way. So we're, we're not saying it's good, it's fun, it's right, it's okay. We're not saying that. But we're saying that your brain, your central nervous system, your body is sending you a signal about something. And there's no question that for some people, uh, uh, the inertial shifts somatically for them to the degree that their somatic experience is contributing to their overall experience there are elements, there, there are people who have experience where even when we're asking all the right questions, saying the right things, being the right presence and so forth, it really feels like it gets, gets away from them. And I would also say it still does not change the fact that I have never, and I've, you know, I've, I've, I've lost a number of patients on, in my career to suicide. And it, it's horrible. And there is not a single one for which the experience that I've had with them ha- has, has not been. They get to a place, like just like you're describing, where they can't imagine that they're worth anything. They are, they are telling a completely, they're, they're telling a psychotic story, mm-hmm. a story that is just simply not true. And then unfortunately what they find is that they are in a position in which they have access to become so isolated, like I can just stay in my bed or I can go, I can get in my car and I can, you know, I'm I'm gonna like turn the gas on and close the garage door, whatever it is that I'm gonna do. But I I will say that I still do believe that ultimately healing is to be found not just with antidepressants or ECT, all of which can be helpful and necessary in many respects. It is still ultimately going to be found in that person sitting in the center of a community that refuses to leave the room. And this is part of our challenge because, well, I'm actually, I got to go home and go to bed. Or, well, when I was a psychiatric resident, actually, if you were on a suicide watch, actually nobody did leave your leave your side like they were they they weren't they, they never left within three feet of you 
And there's a sense in which, while we think that that's primarily about, well, I'm going to watch and make sure that you don't do anything you shouldn't do, which is true. But what we sometimes don't recognize is that what we're doing, if we're really doing our work well, is that we're attuning to a person in a way that they don't have any other experience of being attuned to. All they're attuning to is all the stuff that's banging around in their head, all the lies that you're describing. Um, and so I, I want to affirm that, uh, you know, I, you know if, if, if you, when you get that card in the Q&A session at the end of your talk, uh, there may not be any fail-safe, you know, answer that you can offer. But one thing that you can say is, uh, I want to talk to you. Whoever's asked this question, yeah. I don't want you leaving this space. Mm-hmm. I want to meet you in person. I want to shake your hand. I want to find out who's going to be talking to you tomorrow morning first thing. Who are the people in your life that are going to come and find you where you are? You tell a story about a government official. You're having a conversation with him. Can you tell us that, that story? Yeah, that? That's a story about bad conversations. So as I say, we're not as good at seeing others as we think we are. We're not as good at conversationalists. And I was on the phone with a, a guy who was in the government in the White House. And he was briefing me or tell, telling me about some issue that he wanted to talk to me about. And we're on the, I'm on my cell and the call drops. Uh, and so... Uh, I wait three, five minutes. I think he's going to call me back. He realized the call dropped. We wait seven minutes. We wait 10 minutes. And no call back. So I finally call his office, and I reach his assistant. She says, well, he's on the phone. He can't talk to you. And I said, he's on the phone with me. He thinks I'm still there. He just has not stopped talking for 10 minutes. And that happens so often, what Calvin Trillin calls bore bombs. Uh, in D.C. in particular, somehow, you get people who will just take you out to lunch and will just yap at you. Uh, and it's just the wrong way to be. And so my rule now is if you talk at me as if I don't exist, then we will not be enjoying each other's company again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm th- thinking, even as Kurt's talking about these serious cases, I'm curious about the power of little moments. And so like a, a little moment, I, I mentioned a book, a friend of mine, um, his daughter was in second grade. She was struggling uh, for the year. And the teacher said to her, um, you know, you're really good at thinking before you speak. It's just a little thing. And suddenly it turned what she thought was her awkwardness into a strength. And it sort of turned her whole year around. It was just a little moment. And I was reading that, I was, or reading, hearing that from my friend. Uh, I thought of a moment when I was in 11th grade English and I said some smart alecky remark. And my teacher says to me, Mrs. Dusap, I remember this moment. Um, David, you're trying to get by on glibness. Stop it. And on the one hand, I thought I was embarrassed. He called me out for the whole class. On the other hand, I thought, wow, she really knows me. Like, <laughs> that's fantastic. But it's those little moments. And even in a cash register, like you can go through your life treating the person behind a cash register as a machine or as a human being. And my sense is, I don't know if there's any evidence to this, that those little moments add up. And they add up mm-hmm. to a network of, of feeling felt. Yeah. And so the, it's the way we carry ourselves, even a little, like, I've become much more likely than I used to be since starting the book. I'll talk to n- neighbors on a plane or on a train or the metro or something like that. Um, and I've had a million now conversations with people who I find astounding. <laughs> and I, they wouldn't be my cup of tea, maybe for my best friend, but I was glad I got a, a one-hour glimpse into their life. It, uh, you know, it was mm-hmm. fascinating to be mm-hmm. these people. Yeah. Truckers at a luxury hotel. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's interesting. We talk about uh, neuroplastic change and that uh, if you, you know, simple things. If you want to, uh, especially as an adult, if you want to learn to play the piano, uh, better for you to practice 15 minutes, uh, six days a week, than for three hours a day, one day a week. 
because we're going to do these things in small bits over and over, but we fire them again and again and again and again. And I, you know, in some respects, anytime we even have a big moment, most big moments uh, neurobiologically exist because they just happen to emerge as a culmination of lots of small moments that have preceded them. And so, uh, you know, we have this exercise. Uh, so, so I like the the, um, the the whole notion of small moments in the grocery store. Like these things are important. Like so, s- stopping and saying to someone, "Thank you, thank you for for the work that you do." Like they're yeah. they're putting fruit. Right. They're doing the thing that they do, and like they're just a machine to you because that's all you see until you stop them, mm-hmm. and you stop them for ten seconds, and you say, "Thank you." Thank you for doing this. It really means a lot because if you don't do this, I don't, you know, I don't have apples. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just really grateful. Now it takes 10 seconds to do this, but it happens. It's a small moment, but relative to the rest of the moments of their day, it's completely unusual. Mm-hmm. It's novel, and it has the intention of loving kindness. Yeah. And these are the things that like that is that will be a thing that that person will not soon for, for, now they it might go off in their memory mm-hmm. but they might go home and tell their spouse about that tonight because nobody asks nobody says that yeah. to them and so i i really appreciate the emphasis because and and again we are um we're in a culture i I'm, I'm sure you have the data in your mind about this we have we're in a culture um in which we are being primed to expect that things will appear as I think them. Mm-hmm. Right now, I always say, like, my Amazon packages actually arrive the day before I order them. That's, that's how fast they're coming. Right. And so I, but I expect that this should be the case. I, I don't, I'm not being trained to imagine that actually for something really deeply, durably beautiful to emerge, it's going to take lots and lots and lots of small moments for me to do that. Uh, but th- this is why it's so crucially important in families and schools and churches and so forth for us to recognize that most of what we're trying, the most durable artifacts of beauty in the world are the ones that take the longest time to make, and they are accumulations of those very small moments that you're yeah. talking about. One of the concepts in the book that I found hardest to describe is this concept of accompaniment, which is something Pope Francis talks about a lot. And it's sort of an other-centered way of being present for somebody. But it's not like having big, deep conversations. It's just like going about your business. And so maybe picking up your kids at school or whatever it is, but it's doing it not with an efficiency mindset. It's doing it with, okay, the person is going to come first. And this is a huge problem for me. I'm a journalist, so I've got deadlines all the time. Uh, And when I pump gas, I go to the gas station to pump gas, I think I've got 90 seconds here. I can get two emails done. Like that's a terrible efficiency mindset, but I try to shake. But if you can focus on the person – uh, and even in little ways, I, I had a student at Yale tell me, um, I find I can't talk about big things with people unless I also talk about little things with people. You just got to have comfort in the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another of my students, I mentioned this, um, her name is Jillian Sawyer, and her dad died of pancreatic cancer. And she was at a wedding after this happened, and she had talked to her dad about that he was going to miss some of the big events of her life. And she was thinking of him while she was being a bridesmaid at a friend's ceremony. Uh, and after the, after the wedding and at the reception, there's the father-daughter dance. And she thinks, I, I'm just not sure I can take this. And so she goes into the restroom to have a cry. And when she gets out of the restroom, she finds all the people at her table and the adjoining table have come just to hang around the door of the restroom. And she said, they all gave me a hug. They didn't hang around 
to talk. They just gave me a hug, and it was exactly what I needed. So it's just that one little moment of solidarity. And she remembers it, you know, years later. And, and so it's, that's practicing the, the art of presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was also reminded, I have a friend who lives here in D.C. Uh, who, her, she and her husband say, um, we like our friends to be lingerable. Mm-hmm. We want them to be the kind of people, we just want to linger with them. Mm-hmm. And it's a great trait to be lingerable. Mm-hmm. It means you're good company. Well, you know, you, in that story, I, again, that's just another story that really moved me as, as I read it. I'm where my curiosity goes is to who was at the table who decided we're going to go find her. Somebody was paying attention to something. It didn't just automatically happen. Somebody had to be doing the things you're talking about in order to be aware that things, there are things happening here in the room that will be easy for no one else to pay attention to. And uh, th- that, that was as much of a profound profundity about that story. Right. Like somebody's doing the work to pay right. attention to this Availability of holiness and yeah. availability yeah. and right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. seeing, right. seeing. Thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness. Right. Yeah. 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 You have 10 habits in the book. Uh, I know our time is starting to wind uh, about good habits for sort of better conversations from like, you know, treating your attention as an on-off switch or being a loud listener like Andy Crouch or making people authors, not witnesses, uh, finding the gem statement, uh, finding the disagreement down below. Don't be a topper. Don't be a beat this. Is there any, any one or two? You've got to read the book to get all 10 of them. Okay? <laughs> but, but, well, that any. topper one is a controversial one because not everybody agrees with this one. And the, the don't be a topper, I can't remember where I got it. These are from conversation experts, not from me. I didn't invent these. But it's like you're telling me about your problems you're having with your teenage boy. And instead of saying, oh, let me, tell me more about that, I say, oh, I know just what you're feeling. I'm having problems with my teenage boy. And it seems like you're trying to relate, but what you're really doing is shifting the frame of the conversation onto yourself and saying, I want to talk about this. And so I find, you know, when I think about it more, um, I find you can um, say I, I can relate, but then you have to go back and ask them about their situation and not start mm-hmm. talking about your own situation. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can sort of relate and then go back. The other thing... Um, which I'd love Kurt's opinion on, which I, I've thought hard about, is there's a thing psychologists call looping. And that is if somebody says to you, um, I was really, uh, uh, I had a terrible time with my mom yesterday. And I say, and so looping is me paraphrasing back to you what you said. So to make crystal clear that I understand what you said, because we're not as good listeners as we think, and we're not as transparent talkers as we think. And so I say, I guess you were really angry at your mom. And she says, no, it wasn't really anger. It was, I felt diminished by my mom. And there's a difference there. And so when I'm looping, I'm asking it back. And I sometimes get awkward around this because I think if I, six times in 10 minutes I say, so what I hear you saying is, I'll sound like a therapist. Like, like, <laughs> and so I, I try to paraphrase like a little more artfully so it doesn't seem like I'm, I'm doing this trick. But a friend of mine said to me the other day, no, you should just pick up the three or four keywords they just told you and repeat those keywords and said, tell me more about that. And that struck me as a pretty effective technique for, to, to get to that level, layer down. I don't know if you do looping in your work, but. Yeah, I, th- I think we would, we, uh, the, the whole notion of, of curiosity is kind of the, maybe the placeholder word for this. When someone says, you know, something about their mom uh, and I 
can't. I'm not really quite sure exactly. But I can't pinpoint the explicit emotion you're really. And there may, there may, there may be several emotions. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm going to say, wow. Wait, tell me more about this. So, what's the like? What's the what's the feeling that you have with that? So, I'm going to ask this question. And so, uh, in in some respects, the the looping notion is what we are we are really trying we are trying to engage. We are trying to let them know, signal that like I'm paying attention. I I want you to have. It's not just that I want to understand. That's part of it, but it's also I want you to know that you felt understood by me. Those are two completely different categories. Um, you know, it happens in marriage all the time where Phyllis is saying something, and then I say, "Yeah, I understand." Well, as far as she's concerned, I like whether I do or I don't. Like she doesn't feel understood, and so one way is to do that is like, oh, "I hear you talk. Like you sound angry," right. and they say, "Well, I, I anger. I guess I'm not really angry. I guess I'm just really embarrassed." Right. Something. So to ask the question. What what more can you say about that? Can, is there anything more you want to say about that? Is there anything more that you want to say about that? Wow, I really get that. I, I hear you talking about your anger. Am I getting that right? And and so in some respects, we're we're talking about different forms of the same kind of practice. Yeah. Yeah. But again, this notion of the in in some respects, I want to know somebody, and at the same time, what I'm really wanting to do is I want to give them the experience of being known. By me, and in terms of what our brains are doing, those are different. Those are somewhat different things. And all these things, all these questions, all these suggestions that you were talking about, that I would say, please read the suggestions and then practice them. They're just, they're just beautiful. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that the book is coming into the world. It's out today. Go get a copy. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with leading scholarly practitioners, including those who are people of faith. Thanks for listening.